You're listening to the Full of Hope podcast. I'm RJ Hurd, and today will be the first of two episodes with Ryan Dwyer sharing his experience with cancer, where we'll be mostly focusing on his diagnosis and treatment. We're going to rely on you to grow our podcast, so please share it with anyone and everyone. Because with so many options for things you can watch, read, and listen to, shouldn't one of them keep you full of hope? And now, your host, Ryan Kiggins. Hey everybody. If you haven't listened to episode 9 with Violet, who is Ryan, the guest on today's show, um, his stepdaughter, I suggest you do that. That lays some groundwork and provides some context for the discussion today. Um, I do apologize, like in Violet's episode, some of the audio quality isn't the best on this one, but I'm really hopeful you'll just be able to focus on the content uh, and not necessarily the production quality. My apologies about that, but uh, it was a really interesting interview, so enjoy. Last week, we were lucky enough to talk to you and Violet, who's your stepdaughter, right? Right. And... You know, we we shared her story as as a cancer survivor. She just to recap, she was diagnosed with a lymphoma. I believe that's like very very rare for young young people to have, right? She was diagnosed at ten, but it's the typical age is like in the sixties or something like that. Yes, she was brave enough to do a great job sharing her story, and we kind of teased it last time we talked how your cancer journey started right as hers was wrapping up essentially. And so I think I'd like to have you just kind of start from, from the beginning of that part of it, like, you know, how you were diagnosed and the timing of it. Uh, But right before we do that, let's talk just briefly in case people didn't hear the last episode, let's talk about just your life situation at home at the time, like who's with you and, you know, who's, what are you doing? Like, what's your, you know, what's your career? What's, you know, obviously you've spent two years at this point helping Violet through, through fighting cancer, but, but talk about some other aspects of your, your life at that time. At time of diagnosis. Yeah. 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 It was, um, it was a unique, it was an interesting time for me because I was, uh, very, Work for us was really busy. I was in the restaurant industry, and at the time, it was thriving, like thriving. And um, I worked for a company, Charlie's Produce, which is a great local produce restaurant startup company. And um, they were very flexible with with my situation. And, uh, And essentially, I came in every day with toothbrush in my left hand and something else getting ready in the bathroom because I would be coming straight from Children's Hospital. Um, But towards the end, come like May, like after we had got the call that Violet was going to be okay, um, getting up to the diagnosis point, um, I was just literally walking around the house and I felt short of breath. And I was going up and down stairs. I go up and down, you know, 20 times a day. And I can tell something's not right. And I figured it was an anxiety attack because I'd been pretty stressed out as of, well, I had been pretty stressed out. And I thought it might be something like that. So I went into, as you would say, I believe, a dock in the box, a walk-in clinic. And um, they said, everything looks good. Your oxygen said, it's not about what that says. I'm telling you, I can't breathe correctly. So they sent me to cardiac at Evergreen. And that, that was kind of, that's where it all really started because um, as soon as I walked in, like I could tell something like they brought me into the emergency room. And as I walked in, I could see the social worker. There's always a social worker there. But the only time I've ever talked to a social worker was when they came in to tell me that Violet had cancer and that wasn't like the best experience. But as I, I just remember visually like scanning as I'm going back to this room and seeing nothing but working bodies and then this guy on his phone that clearly was like the social worker. And it, it registered with me for some reason. Fast forward, they run, they do these tests on me to see if it's, if it's uh, my heart, EKG comes back fine. 
Then they think it's blood clots in my chest. So they're looking for blood clots in my chest. They take the blood, leukemia levels come back through the roof. They come back to me and they're just first person through the door is, is the guy that I had seen on the way in. And before they could say anything, I was just like, you're a social worker, huh? And he just kind of stopped. And the doctor goes, why would you ask that? And I was like, are you a social worker? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, so you're about to give me some bad news right now. And they, they didn't really know what to say to that. And like, I didn't know what they could possibly, I thought they were going to tell me I had blood clots in my chest that they had to operate on immediately or something like that. But what they said was that like my leukemia blasts were like through the roof, like 77,000 times higher than they're supposed to be like absurd through the roof. Like I haven't been to a doctor in three years, by the way, at least maybe four. So that's a huge point also. Like this could have been in me for four years. Interesting. But you so, hadn't, you hadn't had any symptoms though. No, before that. Wasn't, this wasn't, it was pneumonia that triggered my chest to do that. So it was pneumonia that got me in there. So if they had just treated me for pneumonia and I had left, then I would still have had the leukemia. Right. Well, so, instead, go ahead. So one question that I've got, it's a really unique situation, obviously helping your stepdaughter fight cancer the previous two years. I'm wondering if anything that you interpreted as stress or anxiety was were actual symptoms that others may have recognized, right? That would have alerted something, but because you were supporting yeah. Violet in her battle, like it kind of maybe masked something. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's two things that I'll say here. One, I was, I was a, when I could, I was an avid golfer. I was always smoking cigars and vaporizers and stuff like that. Two, you know, the pneumonia was the pneumonia, but like what I could feel was very acute. Like I could point to an issue, like I could point to it. And so I knew that there was like some problem in my chest. It turned out that it was, it was pneumonia. Mm-hmm. I Which you'd never had before. No. Right. No. And, and Violet, she, okay, so she'd been in the hospital at that point. Um, she'd only been in the hospital for like six or seven months at that point. And she was getting out in June. And um, I think a combination of just like, you know, life being crazy, work being crazy, living in a hospital trying to do your best without accurate sleep eating and all of that outside having another child, you know, just like everything that went into um, my personal life at that time, there wasn't a specific symptom where I could look at Violet's neck and say, there's a lump in the side of your neck or like, or like you've been wheezing for days or something. It wasn't like that. Like I had felt this for a couple of days, but if it were not for the pneumonia, had I not gone in that day, if they had just said, no, you're out of here, then today I would be sitting here however I would have been if the cancer had progressed because I would have not known. Right. Amazing. So Luke thing, how I found out. And then yeah. they just sent me straight to you. Wow. Well, okay. So before we jump into that, you mentioned, you mentioned another kid in the house. So Talk, talk a little about that, the context, like who else is, we've, we talked about Violet and we talked in the previous episode about her, her, her older brother. Yeah. So her, her older brother at the time is going back and forth between a, he was going to a school in Arizona and coming back home every couple months. And, um, she was very close with him in the year, couple of years prior to him going to school in Arizona. Right. And they had kind of, kind of separated a little. And when this happened with Violet, um, you know, he wanted to be home immediately doing whatever it was that he could to contribute and help and be there for her and support the family and, and so on and so forth. So it was, um, it was just an interesting transition because, frankly, he wasn't planning on coming home 
like for another few months and we weren't planning on him coming home for another few months. And when you're living in hospitals, I don't know, it's just, it's not normal life. No. Oh, so, and he would have been 16 at the time. So 17, right in that age. So he's right in that age too. We're like, do I want him at home 24 seven? You know, I've got rings all over the place, but like, <laughs> Yeah. But like, you know what I mean? Like, we I don't need any more added, added issues. And so what was cool was that um, he jumped into action, came home and became such a uh, influence for Violet, like showing up as frequently as he could. And um, it helped her a lot. And it really built their relationship back together. So that 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 was cool. What to say about like the animals and all that like that's a, you don't think about that stuff until you can't be home right and it's like we're about to deal with that again so now we're gonna have violet and nick here and two dogs and alexis is really supposed to be with me 16 hours a day mm-hmm. alexis is your wife yeah yeah so yeah this is and ryan's ryan's uh referencing the fact that he's about to go through a stem cell transplant upcoming and we'll we'll just tease that for now but um that's what he's he's facing in the next month or so i think um starting that the actual transplant he's already started you've already started conditioning for it right some yeah and i did so well until yesterday like i got through the last couple weeks conditionings when they conditioning my wife just walked into she'll probably sit down with us but um, conditioning is when they start evaluating your body and all your organs to see how they're operating on the levels compared to how they should be from a healthy perspective. They also do it because when they start this whole transplant process, they drop your immune system. It goes away. And, and they need to see, like, what levels it takes to get to the point where essentially you'd be kept alive by machines. And so... Like you do heart, all major organs, basically. And I did really well until yesterday. They they found a little polyp in my sinus, which now I have to go for surgery beginning of first first couple of days of October. So now my whole process is now pushed back a week, which is you wouldn't think normally I'd be like great with it. I'd be like, yes. But in this case, I already lost one of my two donors. So I just want to get this going. You know what I mean? Oh, my gosh. Yes. That's to touch on the whole, like, um, you know, process of I didn't mean to jump from the violet thing there. Yeah, that's okay. We'll 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 circle back to this for sure, because, yeah, it's super relevant and just happened to you. So I would I would love to just probe on that, but I'd like to actually step step back again. So uh, to, to a little earlier in your story. So. You're diagnosed at the hospital. The social yeah. worker is there to tell you yeah. that you've got leukemia. How, how do they tell you? Like well, the, the doctor, the on-call doctor who also had not been in the room the entire time. Um, not, not because, I mean, she was just really busy. You know, she was an incredible doctor. I just hadn't seen her before. And she came in and she was the one that... Um, as soon as they walked in, I initiated the conversation by saying, you're a social worker. Or are you a social worker? So they were already kind of caught off guard at that point. Um, but he, uh, after he kind of explained to me, because all he could say was yes, but he wasn't answering my question, right? So, and I was at this point just holding on to the side of my bed because I knew something was up. And, and that's when she said, Um, Well, what you're feeling in your chest is pneumonia, but there's a larger issue at play. And that's that you have like, she called it at the time. She said you have full blown like advanced leukemia. Yeah. Were you alone for that discussion? No. um, At that point, my mom was there. I didn't tell anybody. Like I went by myself and did because everybody was already stressed out my dad had just landed um in hawaii where he was where we lived there as well and he was planning on being there for a while and he'd only been there a couple days and he had just started his retirement 
And when Violet got diagnosed, so his first half of a year of retirement, he spent at the hospital. So when I got, when I felt something was up, I wanted to make sure it was worthy of rattling everybody before doing so. So um, when I was at the hospital and they were suggesting I had blood clots in my chest, I called my mom and she came and my mom was sitting with me when they diagnosed me. So mom's local then? Yeah, both parents. Okay. Okay. And Alexis, thanks for joining us. If you heard a female voice, that's Ryan's wife, Alexis. She joined us on the call as well. So thank you so much. What's your reaction when you hear advanced stage leukemia? Like I'm going to die. I mean, that's really it. The first part of it was like, there's no way this could be true because Violet is like, literally we were just told like a day prior that she was going to be in remission in June. So just didn't seem real. Once they told me like how quickly they had to act, I knew it was a real and B that I kind of had to accept it. Right. Cause like at that point there was, there was uh, not much else I could do and, had they said it was a pulmonary issue, I couldn't have done anything except their treatment. Had they said it was a, just pneumonia, they would have treated me for pneumonia. And I knew after what we went through with Violet, there was nothing I could do. It was going to be up to everybody else at that right. point. Well, yeah, so you've got to deal with the pneumonia first, right? Like that's acute. That's happening right this second. So that has to be dealt with. And was it during that same discussion with when your mom's there with you that they, they talked to you about a treatment plan or did they refer you somewhere else at that point? Yeah, they, they, um, they said we need to get you to UW and and my car was parked right outside the ER. And I was like, "What, what do you mean? They're like, you need to go like right now. As soon as we can get you a ambulance and a bed, you're gone. And so I don't think I was probably there a couple hours, but I, I, I know I was, I arrived around like nine o'clock at night to UW, but dude, I think I told you this already, but two uh, really young guys, I'm in the bed at Evergreen. Okay. And they come in because they transfer you to a different gurney. And so that's when I first saw them come in. And I just remember being like, man, those guys look like they're like my son's age. Like they look like they're teenagers. And they like, we're going to get you all situated. We got you taken care of, you know, and they were saying everything they could to reaffirm me and to keep my confidence up, which was beyond their years, which was really cool. But I do remember being put into the ambulance and then the ambulance door, he shut the ambulance door and one of them was sitting with me and he was just kind of like, so how's it going? (laughs) And like, I literally just lost it. And it was, uh, you know, I explained to him how it was going. (laughs) And that's insane that I was in this situation uh, given what the last few months had involved and uh, off we went. I requested no lights, no sirens. Cause that's, I just didn't want to listen to it. And um, yeah, when we got there, I didn't talk to anybody in my family. I think that, did I talk to you? Yeah. You called me and I came down right away. You called so- from university of Washington. Yeah. He called me once he got there. Um, and he was just in tears and apologizing because he knew everything that our family was already going through and to hear the word cancer, but specifically leukemia was absolutely frightening when Violet, I don't know how much was told about Violet's diagnosis, but it took quite a while for her to get her diagnosis. And the word leukemia kept being brought up. And so that through that whole time of not knowing and thinking it could possibly be leukemia, we were just praying like, please, God, do not let it be leukemia. Because when you hear leukemia, you, you think of, of death. 
Our goal with the Full of Hope podcast is to hear from and share with as many people as possible. This is where we need your help. Please tell your friends and family about us so that we can grow. If you want to share your story, go to fullofhopepodcast.com and fill out the form on the Get On Our Podcast page. Or search for Full of Hope Podcast on all social media platforms and reach us there. We ourselves are full of hope that we can help thousands of people, but we can't do it without your help. So thank you for helping us grow. The worst. You think the worst, right? What you've heard. Absolutely. Um, And a lot of that comes from just lack of knowledge, too. Um, uh, And so, and just the word cancer. If you don't know anybody, you haven't gone through it, you know, firsthand, you think, well, you're you're, you're 50-50. So he called told me that they said he had AML. Um, I mean, it was shocking. Absolutely shocking. I just remember breaking down, crying the whole drive there. But yeah, when we got there, that place was a ghost town. I mean, respectfully speaking, but it was like black. Like their sensors work on like, if you walk towards these doors, the lights go on type of thing. So like you could see everything was dark except for when you're, when they'd wheel you through. And then they took me, uh, the next thing I knew is when I got out of the elevator, the first thing I saw was uh, the leukemia unit sign. And it kind of got real. I, well, so it, it clearly got real on the ride over, right? When you're talking to those guys and or that, that one guy in the car ride. I mean, yeah. when he asked you how you are, was that the first time you really had a chance to reflect on how you were? Well, I think that, like, to this day, um, I haven't totally reflected on it yet. Because it just hasn't stopped. Since Violet was diagnosed, it's just been a train So my time to reflect on it was like once they told me I didn't, I had like a couple months of them saying I didn't have to be at SCCA weekly for tests and uh, being diagnosed again. Well, so when you called Alexis, you knew that it was AML. Um, so you had some further information on the diagnosis. It's an acute leukemia, right? And I'm guessing you do, I mean, you do something about leukemia, but not much. Okay. So actually, and I, I take that back. We knew it was leukemia that night, but we didn't know until the next morning what type. They they thought it was AML, but we didn't have a final diagnosis till the next morning. <laughs> and at that point chemo started right away. It was just go time. There was no time to really even process what was going on. It was just so shocking. Yeah. That, that night though, like a doctor, the first person to communicate with me, cause they take you to these, the rooms there are actually really nice, especially considering what's headed my way now. But um, they were like built in the last five years and it's just like, they're big, spacious rooms, but you can tell that they're for people that are going to be there a minute. And uh, I remember the doctor who first sat down with me, this guy had to have been in his, maybe his late 30s, early 40s. And he was the nighttime attending. And he came in and he just said, well, he put his arm around me. And he said, well, we're going to kick the shit out of you. If you can take the ass kicking, then we're going to be able to save you. And um, do you want me to say that again? Without no, that, that was awesome. I love that. Well, that's that's that, that, like, exact words to me. And uh, <laughs> part of it was because I'm just a very black and white type of person and I think he could tell that I didn't need to hear any fluff or whatever and so that's what he said but he also said that they would start chemo on Tuesday this was Saturday night 
And then with no discussion, they started chemo Sunday morning. So that was another reason why I knew it was more advanced was because they were starting, what, three days earlier than they said they were going to start. Yeah. Wow. So you didn't have an oncologist that you worked with from SECA. Like you're just getting this information from the doctor that is on rotation at University of Washington. And it's... I wasn't aware... Um, until way later in my process that people usually started at SCCA because I never knew. I went to school a matter of blocks from high school, a matter of blocks from that campus, lived on Capitol Hill, been around it my whole life, had no idea. Yeah, that's an, that's that's like an interesting aspect of it with experiencing what you did with Violet. I I would think you would um have become aware at least like that the building is there or what it's for, maybe. Like <laughs> I mean, I, come on. I knew what it was for. I understood what Seattle Cancer Care stood for. I'm just saying like it didn't occur to me that um and I think too, it was because this was so acute. They had to get it moving. Yeah. So Ryan, what I was getting at with, with, you know, awareness of the Cancer Care Alliance building in Seattle, I wasn't trying to be condescending, but what I was getting at is <laughs> I'm 43 years old. I don't know how long that building has been there, but it was just white noise to me until I was acutely involved in interacting with people there or having a reason right so it's it's kind of interesting that you went to high school so nearby there where'd you go to high school by the way Seattle Prep oh Seattle Prep okay and so you've got this you've got this young guy under you interpret as being under 40 years old and he's putting his arm around you telling you you're about to get your ass kicked yeah, same age as me, basically. Well, yeah, I was just going to ask. So what, if you don't mind sharing, like what, what was your age at, at that time? 39. And 39. if I had been 40, they would have like, I remember them saying like 39 put me in a different category or something than 40 did. <laughs> really? I, my birthday is in December. It's right around the corner. So if I got diagnosed at that point, we would have evaluated different plans. Um, but they, everyone was really like, from the time I got in there, the people that, that took care of me at UW and then ended up transferring me over to Seattle Cancer Care, like everybody was very clear on paths, plans, what was going to happen. Everything was written on the board for all day long. I don't want it to sound like that, you know, like they are on top of it from every level, like in my room would be the hours of the day I'm getting all my IVs or all my meds or like weights, patterns of eating. And somebody's with you, basically a nurse is checking on you, like basically every hour, unless they tell you like, do you want a couple hours to yourself or something? We can come back later. So like, that's how I started getting taken care of. So when I got to Seattle cancer care, it was for, um, maintenance and, and transfusion. Right. So there was, uh, and to answer your question, like oftentimes people will go to a doctor, the doctor will say, go talk to Seattle Cancer Care. They'll go to Seattle Cancer Care. They'll meet with an oncologist that diagnoses them, or they'll get diagnosed and then an oncologist and a team will be assigned to them. And that's like, that's how I hear like most the people that I know who have gone through this, that's like how they've been diagnosed. And that's the process they went through. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's exactly what happened with me. You know, I, yeah. I was, I saw an oncologist or it was referred to an oncologist and then um, they put together the plan and we kind of yeah. executed that. Okay. So let's, let's talk then you're told you're going to start treatment on Tuesday. You wake up the next day and they're like, we're, do- did, we're doing it right. Like yeah. we're starting treatment Sunday. Yeah. And right now. We said, hey, ha- right. Did you have a device um, in your chest yet? Or did they start the chemotherapy with straight up IV? No, they um, had a pick line in his arm put in. Uh, and I think that was the first first of the many kind of new scary experience. 
yeah, that's that right. we were facing because he was awake and I was standing there with him and they had him draped and just it with Violet. I mean, she was put on her. She had a double hickman in her chest. Um, but with Ryan, they did the pick and the line, the pick line. And it was to me just kind of horrifying that someone would be awake while they're doing this and thinking, Oh gosh, this is just the beginning of everything that he's going to have to endure. But the good news is that like that process, everybody has to do it, get a pick line or, and really it doesn't, I mean, it's uncomfortable knowing that that's going to be going from your a hose will go from your arm up through your arm across your clavicle down and towards your heart chamber. Like obviously that makes you think, but you really don't, it wasn't like a painful, scary, the scariest part about it was just thinking about what they were doing to get it in there. Like I wouldn't want somebody to go into the procedure, like really worried that it's going to be, like painful because now they don't use meds for a lot of this stuff. They just do 10 milligrams oxycodone and like um, over the counter. And that's how they do uh, the lumbar punctures as well. And that's how they're, they do my chest and you don't get put under anymore unless you really fight for it. So it's like um, these sort of things in the long run, like, they're so helpful because it kept me from having to get poked or stuck with the IV um, seven days a week. Cause you couldn't do that. I mean, I was going in seven days a week and so I would run out of veins. I had to have that in there. Right. But now right. that I, Hickman, I much prefer. Yeah. So you I saw bet. Violet with the, the Hickman device. You didn't get that. That's, that's what no. you're saying. You never yeah, once got that. My arm instead, it's called a pick line and they just, Went right through my bicep. They did end up putting a, a Hickman line in. This time around. This time. To prepare for the transplant. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. So going back to Sunday, they put the pick line in. They're ready to start chemotherapy. How much discussion with you? I know this is all, it feels like it's just happening to you, right? Like this is the plan. This is what we're doing. How much discussion with you was there about that plan? Like how much did they lay out? What did they believe they were going to do? And then what ended up happening? They, they um, laid out like a very detailed plan and basically just said, we think that you're in a demographic age and health wise where otherwise you'd be a healthy individual it was so weird always hearing that otherwise you're a healthy individual it's like come on you know like if I was a healthy individual I wouldn't be in here right now but um because because I was considered that they were able to go with a more aggressive chemotherapy plan Um, the plan was called G-Clam and then I did a study chemotherapy on top of that so it ended up being six chemos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, six chemos. And then I did you, the chemotherapy. You do the first one the first day, and generally you don't really start feeling that for like a day or two or a couple days. So, like, you're sitting there watching it go into you. And like, mentally, I'm thinking, as soon as that gets in, I'm going to be sick. Like, I'm gonna, as soon as that hits my arm, I'm going to be nauseous. And I remember just thinking it was so odd because the anxiety of being in the hospital hit me before the nausea ever hit me um, the first round. And then once the nausea did hit for me, the first round, it was, it was um, pretty, it was pretty devastating. So because I was healthy, they could do the G clam. They outlined that whole entire plan, explained to me how it was going to work. And like, I, like we both said earlier at that point, it's, you, you just go like, you just nod your head and say, okay, whatever you need to do to save my life, like bring it on. Do do it. Just please, whatever you need to do. Did that involve going back and forth from home to the hospital or were you checked into the hospital for this entire round of chemo? Uh, Yeah. Once I got, once I left Evergreen, I didn't go home until um, after my first round of chemo was over, which now in retrospect, wasn't that long at the time. It was what, like 10, 11 days or something like that. It's usually seven days, but, but I was there longer. You, so. Yeah. Cause because of the trial, but, um, 
we would always end up right back in the hospital three days after because he would get some sort of infection and spend another week in there because his immune system was so low. Right. Had, had you, Ryan, had you, obviously the experiences you had with Violet are one thing, but personally, had you had extended stay in the hospital before? As a, no, as a child, both my brother and I went through children's. My brother had, he was in children's for a couple months, um, but this is back in grade school and I couldn't even really grasp totally what was going on. Um, but no, and I'm, and I'm, uh, for as many rounds as I've done in the last year of chemo, I'm not getting any better at the hospital stays. And unfortunately they're just going to be getting longer and longer and by a, by a very large amount. So that's pretty discouraging. Yeah. I, I, I understand and relate to those things. So the, that first, that first day though, Ryan, they start the chemo on Sunday. Did they, and they told you it was supposed to be, you were going to be there about 10 or 11 days because of the trial that you were on. What was your guys's mindset towards how you were going to get through that stay in the hospital? Well, I mean, mine was just solely based on like, I have to do everything I demanded of Violet. Like, Everything I asked her to do mentally, emotionally, physically, I had to like walk it now. So um, that's like from that moment on. And I, I still to this day wear the bracelet uh, for her. And whenever I go through my procedures, I just like play with the bracelet just to remind me that she did it first. And so that was kind of my mindset, obviously, besides wanting to live, but from an approach standpoint, it was just, you gotta, you gotta get up behind what you've been saying for the last few months. And then it's just up to God and science at that point. Oh man. Um, that got me. Um, yeah, a little bit. Was that Ryan, was that, that sense that you have to live those goals and, and those mindsets that you were coaching her through, did that inspire you? Did it, did it give you motivation? Did you take inspiration from her strength? Yeah. I mean, I took a lot of inspiration from her strength, but I would have much preferred it to be like a hypocritical situation where I didn't have to like do what I said I was demanding or what we were asking. Do as I say, not as I, I mean, do. <laughs> I would have a lot of things I would have done um, rather than that. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Probably prefer to admire it from a distance, right? As a supportive you know, father and, and mom, um, goodness. Wow. That really, I'm sorry. That really got me. Um, it was, it was good though, because like it, we had practice. So it was a different, cause like at one point that week while I was going through chemo or was it the second round that Violet was going through chemo also. Right. And so Alexis was going back and forth between the two chemo units because we were both inpatient on so it wasn't even totally over yet for violet at that point like we knew it was over but she had to put in her work like we talked about on the past deal um even if you're in remission after the first round you still do all the rounds of the chemotherapy so the body still takes all that trauma and pressure and stress and all that yeah so she was she was good she was a good blueprint for how the whole family reacted when I was diagnosed. Hey, was she there with you on through any of this stuff when you were going through it? Was she like, hey, this is how it's going to feel? Oh, yeah. Well, oh. from that standpoint, yeah, but like we weren't allowed to see each other. and Because people... of your immune, cause of immune system? Yeah. She was able to visit him once in the hospital. Um, I think on the third round when her immune system started to come back up. So I took her with me one day and um, that's, you know, we got some good pictures and she's given him some really good advice and uh, been 
they have a bond that nobody else has that only they understand and only they know. And she's just been so sweet and understanding with him. And sometimes also gives him a little tough love, like chin up, you know, you, you need to do this or I know you might not be feeling good today, but you still need to be positive and good at that kind of stuff. To support the Full of Hope podcast, please go to the Support the Podcast page on fullofhopepodcast.com. If you believe in our goal to help people through difficult situations by being able to hear the positive outcomes of those who've been through them themselves, your support will be huge to help us grow. So about that bond, would you say that bond has been forged through the the shared experience that you guys have? I know you're... You're the stepdad, right? So that can provide all kinds of challenges, I would imagine, as well. You know, or or was it something that you guys had before this? Talk about how that relationship has grown. Yeah, I've been in her life since she was like two years old, and um, our families obviously were a blended family. But her dad and I get along, and we all grew closer through this whole experience, but we had a bond uh, prior to that was, you know, strengthened obviously by everything. And like Alexis referenced just the connection of like the person giving me the lumbar puncture, maybe has never had it while they're telling me about it, but Violet's had it. Yeah. She's got street cred, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, just a bit of a side note: a a woman that we talked to who also went through a stem cell transplant herself had said that one of the texts that was giving her one of her biopsies, her bone marrow biopsy, and he'd done it multiple times for her. He had told her that he's been he had been trying to work with his insurance to see if he would be allowed to have the procedure done on him. So he would be able to have that empathy for people going through it. Like that's straight up amazing in my mind. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. All is what they can do though, you know, and it's uh, with minimal, with minimal pain involved. Um, even though, like I told you, I had the first time I went through those, I had fentanyl lollipops and that's, that's what they're called. Fentanyl lollipops. And then the next time I went through, I basically had like ibuprofen and, um, I was terrified, but really it was just more of like abnormal and unusual pressures than it was any sort of like, I got to tell you, okay, but you're downplaying it because I got to tell you. So after I had my first one, I did, uh, I, well, they were probably more um, giving, I guess, with the the uh, conscious sedation because they didn't bulk at it for me. Like I was out of it for all of my biopsies. But dude, you were kind enough to send me – I don't know if kind is the right word. You sent me a video of one of your, bi- of your biopsies. Dude, I like got – not because it's gross or anything, but just like it upset my stomach just because – it put me in that place of the discomfort. It's they call it pressure, right? And they even said it during your video, like you're going to feel pressure. It is pain. Let let's just be real, people. Well, and there's two different procedures, right? There's like a bone marrow extract that I'm talking about. There's a bone marrow extract, and then there's like the lumbar, spinal, the spinal, spinal. as like people would call it, right? And and I, I'm not going to interrupt your story, but the spinal, I had much different reaction to, but go ahead. So I was done. I didn't have anything else to say. I so just, was, cause I had a spinal last week and it kicked my butt, like kicked my butt. And I was scheduled for tests the next day. And they were like, you need a wheelchair. When I walked in the front door, I was like, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. But what happens is they extract your spinal fluid. And then when you break being flat on your back, your spinal fluid that normally wouldn't shift shifts and it leads to intense like migraines and all. And I was 
hit hard with those migraines. They had to cancel all my tests, put me Four on days. Put, put me on an IV. If I didn't drink over three liters of water a day, then I was going to have to get a caffeine drip, which I haven't had before, but caffeine drips are the only way to get rid of the spinal fluid headaches. Um, and yeah, it, it was not like with the extracts there, they're usually in the place, the thing, and they extract it. And with this, they need to find the right place. And so like, usually they get it on the first one, but, um, not all the time. And yeah, that's, that's, that part of it's painful knowing what's going in there. Thinking about it is a little intimidating, but like, given what you know, they're doing and to watch them do some of the stuff in front of you or in the room. Um, it's pretty cool. But yeah, the last final had me on my back, like for four days, not in a good spot. And I just got over that the last couple of days. My goodness. I felt so bad because leading up to the procedure, that was the one thing he hadn't had done yet. And I was trying to make him feel comfortable. And I was telling him, you know, I've had two epidurals while having contractions. You've got this. It's not that big of a deal. You know, you'll be fine. And then, of course, he ends up getting the spinal migraine every three, four days. And it's just miserable. I'm just like, oh, jeez. So My much. Goodness. Trying to talk down about- having not gone through any of this. Uh, I, I personally, from all the stories that I've heard, I really, really don't want one. Like, <laughs> really bad. Really I don't bad. think anybody would. <laughs> no. Well, so, Ryan, this is 100, you know, 100%, you know, your story. But, Alexis, let's just take just a second here. So, you've got a daughter and a husband go essentially going through treatment for cancer at the same time. Yeah. So talk, tell, just talk to me for just a second. Um, I think I just, I went into overdrive. Um, I mentally prepare myself just to be their support. Um, I don't think Violet ever really saw me cry. I don't think maybe once you saw me cry because I feel like if I start crying, I don't want to let them know that I'm scared or I have fear. So my main purpose was to serve them and build them up and keep them strong. And uh, it was, it's exhausting sometimes, but I I can't even complain about anything that if I'm tired or if I don't feel well because I feel like they have gone through so much. Like yeah. I felt so bad the other day because I went and got a flu shot and I was so terrified and I had to sit there afterwards because I saw the needle and I came home and I felt so bad and I was telling Ryan, I feel like such a whip. You've gone through so much and I was like a freaked out from the flu shot. Yeah. Yeah, it's just... Uh... Well, so two things. So first of all, in terms of not feeling like you can complain about things because of other. So here's, here's something that that I did for many years after my transplant and still even busted out every once in a while is if my, if I've got friends or family that are annoyed with me or complaining about something I'm doing, I all like, I jumped to, I almost died of cancer. (laughs) Now, now it was funny. The first, maybe four times it doesn't work anymore in my family. Like it just gets massive eye rolls, but it's still fun to try. Yeah. You get a little bit of cred that way. So this is something you'll be Ryan, like, don't, don't sleep on that. That's, that can be effective, but, but Alexis. So the, the other thing. Get out of a ticket the other day. (laughs) Wait a minute. Let's hear it. We got to hear about this. Now we need a sidebar story about the ticket. (laughs) It didn't happen, thank God. But we were we were, we were plotting it just in case it did happen. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I would. I, that's a good move. Um, <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to to probe out a little bit was Ryan. You mentioned you know once you're in there and this stuff is all, all the ball starts rolling on it that you felt like you know you needed to put 
your faith and focus on God and the scientists, right? So, so, you know, are, are you open to talking about how or if faith, religion, spirituality played a role um, in yours or, or both of your, you know, battles through this? Yeah, it, um, I mean, I was raised Jesuit, which is a form of Catholicism, and went to Jesuit high schools and high school and college and um, have not been a, I would consider myself more spiritual than religious. Um, whereas my mom, I would say, is a, a very religious woman. I am more spiritual. And um, there's no doubt that like that helps and played a role in both being able to ask rhetorical questions or whine or complain or to just ask for help or guidance or strength. Uh, so I use prayer a lot, a lot. Um, but I am not like an active, I'm not active in, in a specific like church community. Right. Uh, but it's always played a role in my life and a lot of it has to do with that upbringing. Right. I mean, like I've been brought up Jesuit my entire life. And so, I mean, it helped my parents, I'm sure as well, especially my mom, cause um, she's, she's very religious. And, and so I know that that gave her an aspect of peace and an outlet. And she would tells me every day she's praying for me and, and uh, I get a lot of mail from people, support mail from people I don't know that I've never met that talk about praying for me and thoughts for me. So, yeah, I, I personally, for me, it, it, it has and will continue to play a pretty driving role because when you're in this position, you look for any sort of life vest at all to hang on to. So um, that's more of a foundation that I chose to be either active or less active in, but it was still in my life. So when I was looking for life vests, it was like an island. Yeah. That I think that's really important for people listening to realize the the power that you can have. If you're, if you're supporting or you want to support somebody whether it's just encouragement or prayer chains that are going on at church or any other thing along those lines, like those can be very, very impactful to people. Especially people that have never had it be a part of their life. True. Yeah, that's a great point. Because now they're praying. Yeah, I, I had similar experience where it felt it, to, to read notes from people that I didn't even know. And they're talking to me about their prayer for me. I could actually feel it. Like it was, it's almost tangible to have a similar thought about it. Yeah. It's still, it helped. I, I mean, because of some volunteer projects that I'm sure at some point we may address, but um, I get mail from people that are fighting right now or who have lost people. And it's, those are the two that I usually get mail from. And um, so it usually comes with advice and a story and telling me that I'm in their thoughts or prayers. So, yeah, it's just a lot to kind of keep in your back pocket is knowing that there's a community of people, whether it's smaller or larger, that are keeping you in their heart, right? And it's come a lot from complete strangers. Yeah, that's amazing. And I definitely I want to I want to get to some of the discussion about the nonprofit that you guys started, but let's continue along the path of your journey. You're told a plan. How many rounds of chemo have they told you to expect before you should expect to see results? Or just, oh, before I saw results, um, they just said that plan on four to six months, okay. and. They aren't, I'm really big on wanting metrics and results. And so they were very clear from the beginning that they don't guess until they know you don't get an answer, which is how it was for Violet. Like it was like three plus weeks. Um, 
while they did their due diligence, making sure that what they told us was the right information. Same for me. It was just, you know, they wouldn't, I was constantly trying to get more info out of them. And they were a lot of what, what they would tell me is let's just, you know, wait and see how it goes. So I planned on it taking four to six months and it, it did. But so I was mission after what? So that's, that's something that we discovered too, that we didn't really know. So they told him six rounds of chemo and we found out right around round five that he was in remission, but he had been in remission after the first round and the rest of it was just preventative to keep it to keep the cancer away and that's something we didn't understand we thought we had to wait till the end of round six to see if he was fully in remission but they had actually removed the cancer after the first round so wow so did they break it down for you because i think what they told me was the my first treatment path was called induction therapy and then the rest the follow-on ones were they called in called them consolidation it was it the same terminology yeah okay so were the follow-on ones then that you did after the first round which is super hardcore like they told you we're about to kick your ass right now right is what they literally told you were the follow-on um did it feel lighter like did you notice that it was less intense or was it less intense um the chemo is definitely less intense well the regiment was the same. So I guess like scientifically it was the same, but for me, uh, the reactions were just much less intense than that. I I couldn't walk. When I first got to SCCA, I was wheeled in in a wheelchair. And that was my first experience showing up to the doors of SCCA. So, and it was to get to meet my team. And that's when they told me that it would be like seven days a week for like uh, until my next round of chemo basically, or until my numbers started leveling out. But I kept having issues as Alexis alluded to, and um, it just kept me in there more frequently than I had hoped. So wielding on a wheelchair because of energy levels, because of strength, nausea what was it all of the above just the overall like i felt like it was constantly like i had been hit in the head with like a baseball bat and just i couldn't lift my head up i was ill if i did anything i wasn't strong enough to keep myself up i wasn't strong enough to walk long distances um and so i was just and i had never physically been in that place before Mm-mm. so to a have to rely on like your you know your older parents all due respect to be pushing you in in the wheelchair you know it's just like what's going on here and ryan had um abnormal extreme nausea too um is, is what we were told his is not was I've never seen anything like it. It was just unreal. It's starting at, you know, four o'clock in the morning, waking up every morning, just throwing up and then having to be at the hospital at eight and having to carry the barf bags in the car all the way there and sitting in the lobby at SCCA, just dry heaving. And this just stop, you know, a week after chemo this went on throughout his entire therapy and we we, he was on 20 something pills a day round the clock waking up you know every few hours giving him his medications making sure just to try and keep the nausea somewhat at bay and I think and then you lose weight because you're not eating you're not getting the fluids and so it it was just it was really hard this, this round, they did a different type of chemo um, that didn't affect him as bad, but the first six rounds were very difficult for him. Well, they they, they warned you, right? They're going to kick your ass. Um, uh, yeah. sure <clears throat> they followed through on their yeah. their promise. <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's really unfortunate they just weren't able to find an anti-nausea that did 
really enough, right? So what they what we did was, and again, usually from what I understand, it works with most people. But what they did was um, a step up program where I had like four different nausea meds, and you would take one when the nausea starts, and you would take the second one forty minutes later if it hadn't changed, and the third one forty minutes later. So really, if it hasn't changed, you're a couple hours into it, and you're still nauseous. And so I think it's up to like. You hope that works, but you also have to kind of try and evaluate other potential ways to curb that nausea. Um, and that's one of the things that I know is going to be headed my way here shortly. So uh, hopefully I do a little better than I did last time. But like Alexa said, these last two rounds of chemo have been not the G clam. So I felt I really felt good. Right. And and what what they're referencing, I, we talked about a little earlier, is the conditioning chemotherapy to prepare for a stem cell transplant. So maybe let's kind of, I guess, fast forward a little bit. So we you 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 were in remission after the first round of chemo, but but I guess you didn't know about that until like round five or six. Round five, we didn't realize. Uh, yeah, well to me. Maybe we didn't ask the right question. Yeah. Well, so. I remember, I think we, I think, I don't know. I Maybe that, I remember them coming in to tell me that we were in remission and, and just being surprised that it was, that we were already in remission, that I was already in remission. So I, I don't remember the exact timeline. Yeah, that's, that's completely understandable. So, so they got it right the first time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, I mean, that's great news because I, uh, my buddy Ryan here, uh uh-uh. uh. I know. What was Ryan? Well, he'll probably, you want to tell us what happened, Ryan? I, oh, listeners, no. I so recommend just, you listen to his podcast. Yeah, yeah, I just jumped back to the first couple episodes. So it's my my deal, but I want to make this about you as much as we can, Ryan. So, so um, which is not a strength of mine. R- RJ knows this about. Yeah, me. like no, I, it's usually all always about him. And, <laughs> I do have a way of spinning things around. Yep. So you're in remission, okay? So you've gone through the six rounds of chemo. Right. Did they call it therapy, by the way, to you? Chemotherapy? Well, so they all the nurses and doctors always referred to it to me as therapy, as opposed to the word chemotherapy. I don't know what no, that was. All chemo. Okay, cool, good. Okay, I feel like that's a that's a little. Me. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a bit of a language thing, but anyway. So you're in remission. How long were you in remission before you found out something had changed? So by the way, sorry, before we jump there, remission means the cancer is gone. Like in, in, you know, I think a lot of people hear that term don't always know what it means, but you're cancer free um, when they tell you you're in remission. And to your point earlier, Ryan, they want to be quite sure before they tell you this stuff, right? Like it's measured and they want to be clear about what they're communicating with, with you. So from their mind, the cancer is gone. How long was the cancer gone and how did you find out something changed? Um, I didn't, well, I found out something, the cancer we were just talking about, obviously our timelines need a little more sink, sinking, um, But, you know, it was months is the bottom line that I was knowing that I didn't have cancer in me and not having to go back to SCCA. It must have been like at least seven or eight months. I don't know. Alexa says 11. I don't know. So he was diagnosed in May and went through one round. And then it came back, we found out the following May. So he was technically in remission for about 11 months. Less than a year, which is why they want to do the bone marrow transplant because it came back so quickly. Okay. Well, how did, how did, so how did you find out this May? Like what was it through blood work, ongoing blood work? Yeah. Okay. No symptoms though at that point. Okay. Are you bewildered at the fact that that seems unique when I was in remission? That what? Are you surprised? I don't know. I can't remember exactly what happened that we're. A little bit, only because I think for me, that was such a focus. 
it's really, I don't know how many people on the planet can relate to, first of all, just going through what you went through in and of itself, but then also along the way is, is Violet and her battle as well. So that has to play a factor in where your focus is and, and maybe even the types of questions you're asking. So from the time I was in remission, I had a couple more, a few more rounds of chemotherapy and mentally I don't consider that like I I struggled accepting um, being in remission and having to do chemotherapy at the same time and so I kind of consider my last round of uh, chemotherapy which really ended up going until the end of 2019 um, that is when I would consider myself starting to mentally think that I don't have cancer anymore. And I would say that started around probably December, November, December of 2019 is when I started knowing that I, I could see the light and that I wasn't, it wasn't going to scare me anymore, I guess. Hey, I just wanted to say after producing this episode that that last exchange there um, with Ryan asking if I was really confused about him not really knowing when he reached uh, remission, I feel really badly about how I handled that. Honestly, um, I was confused just because it was so important to me um, when I went through my cancer to achieve remission. But I thought Ryan had a really, really poignant and interesting perspective about that when he basically said, hey, you know, it it doesn't really matter if I'm in remission if I still have to keep getting treatment, right? And when he could finally see the end of the road there on his treatment, he felt like, you know, he was seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and he'd achieved a goal that way rather than just, you know, this kind of arbitrary name of, you know, you're in remission, um, I just thought it was really interesting listening back and I feel badly. Um, I apologize to Ryan and Alexis if, uh, if I was at all offensive in how I addressed that. But, um, I think it was the first time, you know, anybody had shared that, uh, that particular perspective and I found it really interesting. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode here. Um, we had a really, really long conversation, and um, it was just too long, I think, for one episode. So we'll stop it here, and uh, I'll hand it off to RJ. To find information about today's episode, how to support the podcast, or find out how you can share your story, go to fullofhopepodcast.com. All of our social media info is there, or you can just look on all platforms for Full of Hope Podcast. The next episode We'll continue with Ryan's journey. And we will also talk about some amazing work Ryan and his family has started as an incredible nonprofit organization, benefiting restaurants and honoring the caregivers that are so instrumental in helping patients. Check it out at findinefrontlines.com. Thank you so much for listening and sharing with a friend. And until next time, this is RJ reminding you that Ryan's story is living proof. There is so much reason to be full of hope. I got-